nation of Israel experienced a very interesting blessing during the 400 years that they were in captivity in the land of Egypt. If you're familiar with the biblical accounts of the nation of Israel at all, you know that they went to Egypt during a time of famine. Israel, in total, at that point, numbered 70 people. They spent 400 years there. No, they probably did not build the pyramids. They probably built the supply cities that uh, archaeologists have found in Egypt to this day. However, during those 400 years of captivity, here was the strange blessing that was given to the nation of Israel, even though their conditions were very harsh. Uh, they were slaves. They were having babies like there was no tomorrow. They, the, the nation of Israel was growing and expanding numerically, biologically, so that when the Exodus came along 400 years later, many scholars believe that Israel numbered north of a million people. And they expanded their population tremendously under very adverse conditions. God blessed their reproductive abilities, apparently. So much so that Pharaoh approached the midwives of the nation of Israel and said, ladies, here's what's the plan is. When you are assisting the Hebrew women to give birth, if it is a girl, leave the child alone. If it is a boy, harm the child and the child's life. And so the, the uh, Hebrew midwives heard what Pharaoh had to say. His command was very clear. And they went back and did not do that. They did not do that. They, they, they successfully delivered babies as was their job and didn't harm any children at all. And some time went by, and Pharaoh called the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, back to him and said, Ladies, 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 you guys are not doing what I asked you to do at all. And here's what the Hebrew midwives said. Now, during that time, the midwives were women who were not able to have children themselves, and because they had blessed the families by not harming any babies, but doing the job well, God, it says in his text, opened their womb. So now the midwives who were barren, are having babies. They go back to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are strong. And when it's time for that baby to come, they have a baby, and the baby has been delivered, and all of the baby jobs have been done before we're even able to get out to the field or the, wherever they are working. And so, you know, you just got to understand that you're thinking of Egyptian women and their labor process, but Hebrew women, they're different. They actually don't even need midwives. That was a lie. That was not the truth. But it was what the women said to protect the lives of innocent children. And while the Bible does not commend their lie, their falsehood, the Bible does record that these women who were known as barren women, that's why they had that job, were able to have families of their own because of God's blessing in their life. Hence the introduction to the ninth commandment as our, we're studying the Ten Commandments, in a desire to understand the heart of God better. We know that these Ten Commandments that God issued to the nation of Israel uh, with great signs and wonders and power through Moses as prophet were not just willy-nilly things that God thinks are important. They are actually manifestations, representations of His nature, of His character. These are things that are intrinsic to who God is that these commands reflect God's personality. And that if we want to have an insight into the things that are important to God about who God is as people who claim to follow Him through faith in Jesus Christ, then we should have a working knowledge of the Ten Commandments and why they are so important. The, tenth, uh, the Ninth Commandment 
says this, you can find it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, if you were to take a look at that commandment, it, it can be summarized basically by saying, don't lie. And we, and that, again, that's not a mystery to us. That doesn't surprise us. We know that the Bible says that God is true, that God there's nothing false about God at all, and therefore God has a high value of the truth because it is a part of his character. He is true. Uh, there's no falsehood to be found in God at all. However, the command specifically is referring to a judicial setting where the Bible is saying that should you find yourself in a, in a situation where you need to give a form of legal testimony, specifically if it's regarding an account of someone else's behavior, someone known to you, a neighbor or a brother or a family member, that you are to give true testimony. As difficult as that may be, maybe it's because it makes them look bad, maybe it's because it makes you look bad, but regardless, when it comes to a legal setting where you are called to give a formal testimony, that you are to speak the truth. This is what this command actually says. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. We've been taking a look at the New Testament applications of these Old Testament laws of the Ten Commandments, and we find that Jesus always kind of takes the commandment to another level, that he takes something that we understand with our minds in the Old Testament, do not lie, and somehow applies it in a greater way so it becomes more of a heart decision for us as well as a mind decision. And we find Jesus saying in the New Testament, we're not surprised by this, that the commandment is, when you go to court, don't lie. Jesus says, don't go to court. <laughs> don't be in a situation with someone that you know, that you trust, that you love, where they feel that there is no recourse except to take you before the court. Because Jesus says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? That the day is coming when men and women of faith will be responsible to give an accounting to God of what is happening on his planet and in heaven. And if you're going to be trusted with that kind of authority, can't you work out this squabble between people who have so much in common? And so Jesus says, settle with your brother on the way. For truly I tell you that you will not be released until you have paid the last penny. For people of faith, it goes poorly for us in court because it shames the power of the kingdom of God. If we claim to have faith in common, then why on earth can't we figure out earthly stuff while we're here, if we have access to the power of the kingdom of heaven? So do not give false testimony in a legal setting. And Jesus says, don't be in legal settings. Work it out ahead of time, brother to brother, sister to sister, family to family, in a, in a community of faith. This is the way it should be. Don't take each other to court. Don't even have to worry about giving false testimony in court because you simply don't have to go there. The single clearest example of this command being broken can be found in 1 Kings chapter 21. Uh, I do not have these verses on the screen. Let me just, I'll just read it to you. Um, it's a fascinating text. It involves a king during a time in Israel's history that was very distressing. Second Samuel, first and second, second Kings. There we go. First Kings, chapter twenty-one, verses one through fifteen. The nation of Israel had been through a civil war and split north to south. The southern kingdom was known as Judah, had a son of David on the throne. Northern kingdom did not. This regards the northern kingdom known as Israel. And I'm reading First Kings, chapter twenty-one. 
some time passed after these events, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard. It was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria, or Israel. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard so I can have it for a vegetable garden. Since it is right next to my palace, I'll give you a better vineyard in its place, or if you prefer, I will give you its value in silver. But Naboth said to Ahab, I will never give my father's inheritance to you. So Ahab went to his palace resentful and angry because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had told him. He had said, I will not give you my father's inheritance. He lay down on his bed, turned his face away, and didn't eat food. We've seen that before, but it's not been in <laughs> It's usually in our children. If, if it's in our own behavior, it's shame on ourselves. But this is what Ahab the king did. Then his wife Jezebel, just, just here for rule, Pastor Josh's rule for life. If you ever meet anybody named Jezebel, they're, they're really not trustworthy. It's just somebody did not like their daughter, and like this is not a healthy person to just be wary in your relationship. Like all cats should be named Jezebel. Then his wife Jezebel came to him and said to him, Why are you so upset that you refuse to eat? Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite. He replied, I told him, Give me your vineyard for silver, or if you wish, I'll give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. Then his wife Jezebel said to him, Now exercise your royal power over Israel. Get up, eat some food, and be happy, for I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. In the letters she wrote, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people, then seat two wicked men opposite him and have them testify against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. That's exactly what happened. The two men got paid off, and they stood up during this feast, and they gave false testimony about Naboth, who owned the vineyard. They killed Naboth, according to the law at the time, and then Ahab took possession of the vineyard, and then God sent along a prophet and, and pronounced doom on the situation. And believe you me, both Ahab and Jezreel got theirs. Uh, it does not end well for Ahab or Jezreel at all. But this is the clearest example in the Bible of what it means to give false testimony. So somebody got paid off, and they straight up lied about an innocent person, and it cost that person their life. Don't do that. That's bad. That does not reflect the nature or character of our God at all. So in a judicial setting, always tell the truth. And Jesus says, don't, don't find yourself in judicial settings. Uh, another powerful passage regarding how God feels about lying, because it is beyond just purely judicial settings, can be found in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 19, where we find the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, there you have it, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, there it is again, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Of the seven things that the Lord hates, according to Proverbs, two of them involve giving false testimony or lying. So we know that God is true. We ought not lie. We should always tell the truth. Once upon a time, two spies were given a task by Joshua, the leader of Israel, 
and he said, cross the river, go into the city of Jericho, and search out the city, find out its ways and its means, and then come back and give report to me, because we're planning to invade Jericho. Years had come, the exodus had happened, the nation of Israel had spent their four years in the desert, Moses had died, and now the great invasion is about to begin. So the two spies go into the town of Jericho, where they stay at a prostitute's house named Rahab. And Rahab takes them in and uh, feeds them and hides them. Word gets to the king of Jericho that Joshua has sent two spies. He sends some guys to Rahab's house and says, bring out the spies that have taken shelter with you. And she goes, oh, you just missed them. They took off, they left through the gate, and they headed across the river. They were hiding on her roof under a pile of grain. Straight up lies. James, interestingly enough, the, the epistle of James, found in the New Testament, refers to Rahab as a righteous woman. So does the book of Hebrews. Now, the Bible never looks back at this account of how Rahab protected the spies on their mission from Joshua, which was a mission from God. Never says Rahab did right by lying, but by protecting the spies, Rahab did right. And the New Testament looks back on her favorably. So favorably, in fact, the Bible clearly records that Rahab and her family were spared the impending destruction of Jericho. She ended up marrying an Israelite man, and if you trace Jesus' lineage, she's his great, 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 whatever, granny. This woman, straight up lies. Now, we know we're not supposed to lie, but the Bible looks back on her and says that she was a righteous woman, and in fact, she's related to Jesus. And so we know that in a court setting, in a legal setting, that we're always supposed to tell the truth. We get that, whether it makes us look bad or it makes somebody else look bad, even if they're close to us, we're supposed to be completely transparent and truthful. And so much so that the, that the power, that that compelling call to be truthful in a legal setting where it might cast someone that we care about in, in a poor light, that Jesus says, don't even go to court. Do your truth-telling privately. Do your truth-telling quietly. Do your truth-telling before it becomes a matter of public record because the power of the kingdom of God is available to work out our differences without going into a legal public setting. So this is the power of the truth. We know that it's reflected in the character of God. But we also know that sometimes it takes extreme guts to tell the truth and that sometimes there are consequences so here's a way of phrasing it. We know that it's not right to lie to somebody. But is it ever okay to lie for somebody? Let me say that again. We know that it is not right to lie to somebody. But is it ever okay to lie for somebody? Understanding that the ninth commandment says, do not give false testimony. And of the seven things that God hates, two of them are liars. That's the ninth commandment. This is where we are as people of faith. That is a tough cookie to try and chew on this morning. So, some examples. Some you've experienced, some that you haven't. And then a biblical resolve to this important question. How do we obey the ninth commandment? Corey Tenboom, in her book, The Hiding Place, there's a Nazi knocking on your door, and there are Jews hiding in your attic. And they ask you the very simple question, where are the Jews hiding in this house? Well, as a matter of fact, they're in your bedroom, sitting in a 30-inch crawl space that was designed with brick so that when the Nazis would knock on it, 
It would sound like it'd been there forever. It wasn't wood. Wood was too hollow. Wood would sound hollow. Brick sounded real. Covered with plaster and paint that had been applied in such a way that even though it smelled new, it looked old. They're in your bedroom. So much so that your family, for the months leading up to this knock coming on the door at midnight, would run into your bedroom and shine a flashlight in your face and say, Corey, where are the ten Jews hiding in this house? And Corey would spring out of bed and say, there's only seven Jews. <laughs> this is her life. This is not a made-up story that I just made up. This is an account of a real person during a real time in our history, and she records it in her book. And sure enough, the knock comes on the door. Where are the Jews that we know that they're hiding here? Where are they? Do you lie to that Nazi officer? Well, in our hearts, absolutely, every time. We don't even think twice about it. But then Corey goes on to wrestle in her mind. She was asked to, the, the family was asked to bring their radios in, to turn them in. And so they had two radios, a big one that was a piece of furniture, and a small one that was portable. She was given the task of returning the small portable radio. She handed it to the Nazi guard. It's the 10 room household radio. And he goes, what other radios do you have in the house? We don't have any other radios. Is this the only radio that you have? Yes, this is the only radio I, I, we, that we have. First time in her life she ever told a lie. Was she right? Should she have told them about the big radio hiding under the stairs? Should she tell them about the Jews that are hiding in your bedroom in a 30-inch crawl space covered over with brick accessible by a secret panel underneath the door? It's tough. Because here's the justification. What's best for the Nazi? Should he go to his grave knowing that he's responsible for innocent lives that have never harmed him in any way, shape, or form at all? So isn't it okay to lie to him in that case? Isn't that actually the kindest thing to do to the Nazi is not put him in a position where he's shedding innocent blood? Isn't that the nature of the command? Do not give false testimony when you're in court against your neighbor. Basically, the command is saying, do not put innocent people at harm, like Naboth was put in harm by Ahab's lies and Jezebel's lies. Woo! I know that when I was preparing for this sermon, I was like, I just hope Nazis don't knock on my door. Because <laughs> that's a tough one. A little closer to home. For many years, I served as a missionary in Haiti, and I would fly in to Capetian or Port-au-Prince, and especially in Capetian, uh, there really wasn't much airport security. There would always be children hanging around, and this is what they would say, give me one dollar. Hey, Joe, give me one dollar. When the Marines invaded Haiti back in the 20s, uh, the currency, the Haitian goud, got equated to the American dollar, and so they started calling five goud one dollar. And so for them, even though the currency was named a good, they would ask for a dollar because the GIs, the Joes, right, would give them dollars. Hey, Joe, give me one dollar. What do you do with that? The fact of the matter is I have more dollars than they can imagine, even as a missionary, you know. Even though I just received whatever the Lord provides for me, I have plenty of dollars, lots of dollars. Knowing that if I started passing out dollars at the Capetian Airport, that whatever security situation I had was going to go downhill real fast, if I was the missionary, it always flew in with dollars for all the kids. So what do you do? Do you lie to these cute little kids? Sorry, they don't have a dollar. That's a lie. So usually, you would you'd have a field of responses that you would have. The best missionaries who were fluent in Creole would speak with the children and joke with the children, and sometimes they would have gifts for them, and sometimes they wouldn't, and they worked out a, a way to get food from the airport with with some grace and some peace and sharing some love, but I didn't know Creole, and I was only there for half an hour or an hour every week or a couple times a week. I didn't live there. 
And so I would normally say something uh, along the lines of, maybe next time, or I don't have a dollar for you. <laughs> it's awful, right? It's terrible. But that was kind of the situation. What do you do when you pull up to the exit 14 in Worcester and you go on left to go to the eye doctor and there's someone on the bridge asking for money? Bible says, don't refuse those who ask you for money. Give to those who ask and don't expect repayment in turn. You know they're going to drink it. What do you do? No, I don't have any money. Is your window rolled up? It's hard, man. It's a version of a lie. Or at least that's what it feels like. Let's keep going. Your mom, God lover, she's getting a little old and uh, she actually has Alzheimer's. And it's breaking your heart. You love your mom so much that mom has come to live with you. And one day, you come downstairs, and you're getting the coffee going, and there's Mom out in the driveway sitting in the car. Hey, 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 Mom, what's going on? Where are the keys? Give me the keys. And you're like, Mom, you, you lost your license months ago. <laughs> like, you're not legal to drive, Mom. You're, you're no shape. Hey, stop your craziness. Hey, I raised you, you know, like, blah, blah, blah. Here, here comes the speech. Give me the keys. Go find the keys. Where are the keys? Do you give your mom the keys? She has Alzheimer's. She's not in her right mind. Oh, Pastor Josh, this is the stupidest sermon ever. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with this? One more, one more. Can I give you one more depressing one? This one's really personal. And I'm just going to set it up and you can tee it up so you can depress your own self. I won't even illustrate it. You ready for this? I'll just give you a fact. 280 AD in modern-day Turkey, this joker got born who became known as St. Nicholas. Run with that one. That's a good one, huh? I'm just going to leave that one there. Four examples of cases where we feel like lying is the right thing to do. We see in the Bible where extreme situations falsehoods were given, they were never condemned for it, but the command and God's character are clear. And we all know that if we become a person who begins getting uh, loose with the truth, that we become known as a liar. And, and that will destroy us personally, that destroys us in our families, that destroys us in our workplace, and all of us probably have an, an, an instance of where we, for a reason that we thought was justifiable, to protect ourselves or somebody else, told a lie, and it went sideways. Because the truth will always out. Jesus said there's no such thing as a secret. What you whisper in the dark places, what you whisper in the quiet places, what you share in the corner of your closet, is what he actually says, will be broadcast from the rooftops. It's Jesus' way of saying there's no such thing as a secret. That any time we tell a lie, it will come out. And we all can go on in our own minds and remember those times where lies cost us. You ready for the New Testament resolve? <laughs> Please, Pastor John. We are so desperate to hear what the Bible has to say about these situations. The Bible speaks very clearly to these situations. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul is speaking to the New Testament church in modern-day Turkey. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, simply says this, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. I'd like to ask the worship team to join me for a moment as I wrap up our time together this morning and the message. Speaking the truth in love 
is the phrase that is the resolve to the scenarios that I put up. It is the New Testament way to wrap our heads around how do we obey the ninth commandment, because that is our desire. Let us grow in every way into him who is the head. As we speak the truth in love, we become more Christ-like. As we dig deep into this passage and into this verse, into this concept, we are able to work through each of the scenarios that I, I presented to us this morning. What do you do with a difficult situation at your door where you are hiding someone who is hiding from being killed? What do you do when mom is senile? What do you do with children and your celebration of holidays? And what do you do with difficult situations out in public? As you think about this passage, speaking the truth in love, let us grow up to be more like Jesus who is the head of our faith, the, the goal of our faith, the author of our faith. God will give us insight and wisdom in how to work through these difficult scenarios where we're wondering, should we tell the truth? Because you see, in John chapter 4, the woman was thirsty in every possible way you can think of thirst. She was thirsty for love. She was thirsty for the truth. She was thirsty for attention. And she was just actually physically thirsty. And Jesus in John chapter 4 encountered the woman at the well, and he says, I will give you water that will lead to eternal life such that you will never, ever thirst again. And the woman says, sir, please, where may I find this water? And he says, tell you what, go, go find your husband, and come back to me, and I will share with you where you can find that water. And she says, sir, I have no husband. And Jesus shared the truth. It's true that you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and in fact, the guy that you're with now is not your husband. And the woman was blown away. That was a very painful truth. Jesus totally called her out. And the scripture goes on to record that he spent the next few days loving not just that woman in her context, in her situation, but the whole village. And that the power of God dropped on that particular locality because they had an encounter with the truth and they had an encounter with love. And John chapter 4 is a great example of speak the truth in love and so be conformed to Jesus Christ who is the head of our faith. This phrase helps me. If it helps you, great. If it doesn't, just dig deep on the promise that Paul gives in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 to share the truth in love. But trying to find the answer to these difficult situations in our love, this is a phrase that helps me. Truth until it hurts, love until it heals. Because that's what Jesus did, right? He shared a painful truth. I tell you the truth. You've been married five times, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. He just went there. But then he stayed until they were healed. Truth until it hurts. Love until it heals. And that's something I, I pray that the Lord will continue to give us some insight in, as it is our heart to never lie, to represent God's character truthfully, that we would be known as a people who are transparent, that we will say what is true and will communicate in a way that loves, even if it hurts. And that when we do share difficult truths with people, that we are not going to abandon the relationship, but that we will plant ourselves there until the Lord is able to bring healing to that situation. We're the people with the message that there is a heaven and there is a hell. Just the truth regarding being eternally separate from God can terrorize. But in the desire of love, sometimes we don't ever mention the fact that there is a hell. 
And that just sets people up to be in a trap, in a falsehood. They don't understand the consequences of their behavior. We're the people that are tasked with that message. We're the people who have accepted that message, that God has shared his truth with us in love, and it hurt, and then he healed. And that's our call this morning as well. Share the truth in love, and so be conformed to the image of Christ, who is God. And so we're going to spend a few moments this morning praying, and then we're going to have a chance to worship one more time with this fantastic team. And then we'll be able to finish our summer strong. I hope you were encouraged by this morning's message, by the power of God's word, that it has the power to go into these difficult situations, some of which I had some fun with this morning, but the other ones that they're not so fun because they're our real life. I pray that you're encouraged by the truth of God's word, that we are to speak the truth in love, share the truth until it hurts, and then love our neighbors until the healing comes. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, it is our desire to not just obey the ninth commandment, but to all the commandments. Because we know that when we are defined by our obedience to the Ten Commandments, that we have been greater conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that is our desire. We have tried things on our own, and it has not gone well. There have been times where we have lied with the best intentions, and then terrible things happen. Father, the greatest lie that we can tell ourselves this morning is that we don't need you, that we don't need salvation, that we don't need forgiveness. And Father, if for the first time we understand that we are done lying to ourselves in that regard, that our destination is hell and we need a different course of action, Father, your promise is very simple, that we simply use our words and our hearts and our minds to cry out in faith. And it sounds something like this, Heavenly Father, I know what I deserve, but it's not what I want. And I've tried my best to avoid my eternal destination apart from you. But now in faith, I cry out and I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe in my heart and I'm using my words to express something to you that I've never expressed before. Would you forgive me? Would you share your painful truth with me? Would you stick around until it's healed over? We ask these things in Jesus' name. That's the prayer. For others of us and our desire to feel to take God's part in conversations at work or in our family, we realize that we have shared the truth, but we have not been loving. For others of us, we realize that we've been so worried about other people's thoughts and ideas and feelings and hurting their emotions that we have not been as honest with them as we should be. We justify it by being loving. Father, will we be defined by fidelity to your scripture, which says to speak the truth in love? Would you give these people and myself great wisdom and a great heart for the truth and a great love for each other that we can be defined by our obedience to the ninth commandment, that we will not bring false testimony, we will not harm the innocent, and in our journey to be more Christ-like, we will speak the truth in love. We ask these things.